On today's episode, Ashley shares part one of the bizarre survival story of Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn. Welcome to Crime Bar. Good afternoon, Ashley. Good day to you. I have been so excited for this story because every time I walk into the kitchen and you're working at the countertop, I don't think I've seen you blink for like (laughs) two weeks, first of all. And second of all, every time you're like, I know I keep saying this, but oh my God. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's so crazy. It's taken me so long to write this because it's every aspect of it is Mm -hmm. so bizarre and so crazy. If I saw it in yeah. a movie, I would be like, this is a stupid movie. Yeah, like, this, this is doesn't happen. Yeah. Yeah, like cut half of the, the crap yeah. out. So I'm doing the survival story of Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn. And this happened super close to where we grew up. I want to yeah, say it, it was Vallejo? in the Bay Area. Yeah, it was in the Bay Area. Yeah. So I got all of this information from, from a book called Victim F, and it was written by Denise Huskins and Aaron Quinn, and mm-hmm. then a, a, a writer named Nicole Egan. So I'm just basically doing a very condensed version of the story, but I highly suggest supporting this couple by ordering their book because their strength and vulnerability is so moving and empowering and they just deserve everyone's support. So yeah, they've been through hell, right? You can spare 20 bucks. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So Denise Huskins was 30 years old when she moved to Northern California in June of 2014. Okay, so she made this move for a nine-month physical therapy residency at at Kaiser Permanente Hospital in the city of Vallejo, Uh which is a small town like 20 or 30 minutes from Napa and Sonoma area. Uh Well, you know that. Uh Uh-huh, very familiar. Yeah. So this residency is a world-renowned program, and physical therapists come from all around the world for this. It specializes in treating patients with severe neurological disorders or who have had brain or spinal cord injuries. It's a big deal. So she's a smarty pants. So Denise was going to do this program for nine months, and then she had an amazing job lined up at the Kaiser in Vacaville, which is just like another neighboring small town. Aaron Quinn was also 30, and he was a physical therapist at Kaiser where she was doing her residency. So I think he was like uh, like teaching in the program, I think. Okay. It's like Grey's Anatomy, the love story that's <laughs> yeah. about to him. Denise said that when she first met Aaron, she was drawn to his intelligence and how he could teach very complex topics in an easy to understand way and that he was so intuitive and almost like artistic in his care for his patients. Mm. So he almost seemed like mystical, like seeing him in his element like this, like caring for people and stuff was just hot as heck. Yeah, hot as heck. Um, so they started getting to know each other, like in social settings when their colleagues would go out to bars and stuff like that. And they really hit it off. She had never felt a connection like this before, but she kind of knew that he was somewhat involved with someone. So Mm. she just viewed him as like, you know, it was just platonic and she didn't get carried away with it, but she definitely was. She was interested, interested but she was respectful. Yeah. 
But then the more they get to know each other, Aaron told her that the woman he was involved with was actually his fiance, but they were in the midst of breaking up. He said they'd been engaged in living together in his home on Mare Island, but that he had recently moved into a spare bedroom and they had sort of like paused because he'd learned that she had been cheating on him. Okay. I was going to say, do we believe him? We do. We do. Yeah. So when he first started dating his now fiance, Jennifer Jones, she'd admitted to him that she'd had an affair with a married FBI, FBI agent in her past. So... I mean, in my opinion, if my new partner is telling me that they openly cheated like that or had, didn't have a problem being the other woman or anything, I would be like, bye. Bye. Because yeah. if you do that, you're going to do that to me. 100%. He didn't feel like that. It was in her past. So whatever. And then when she when he discovers that she had been unfaithful to him, it was like mind blowing, obviously, and so upsetting. But then he was like, okay, well, clearly this is a pattern. You're just a habitual cheater. I just, I wanted to sing that can't turn a house or how, wait, can't turn a housewife into a hoe. No. There's a TikTok a song. Anyway, into you a can't housewife. turn a hoe and, oh my God, never mind. Just, oh, you can't make a wife out of a hoe. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> it, it cut that. Anyways. You're so musical. Thank you. <laughs> Talent seeps from my pores. So, he discovers that she's had an affair. She's having a full, she didn't just cheat on him once or twice. She's having a full blown affair with a married police officer in the neighboring town of Fairfield. And then um, they noted in the book that her name is not really Jennifer Jones. They changed it to protect her privacy. So yeah, cause she's hateable to be clear. <laughs> Uh, so it wasn't like an automatic breakup, but more like he needed some space to figure out how he felt before determining what to do next, because obviously their lives are so intertwined. They're engaged to be married. They live together. It wasn't just a clean break. So he was totally honest with Denise about all of this, and she tried to be understanding and supportive. But like, talk about shitty timing when you meet this great guy. Yeah, like, right person, wrong time. It's awful. And then for Aaron... I mean, this poor guy's world just imploded and he's in that really terrible place when you first go through a breakup and then like, it's so raw and Oh yeah, you awful. feel like you're dying. Yeah, it's so awful. But then he meets this like awesome girl. Yeah. At this, so it was very difficult. Um, I feel for both of them in that position because it really sucks. Like, yeah, what absolutely. are you going to do? So they were just platonic because mm -hmm. obviously it was too complicated. And the cherry on top is that Jennifer also worked with them at Kaiser. So they both saw her every day. Yikes. But eventually this limbo phase, like it, it only lasted a few weeks and Jennifer moved out of Aaron's house in August of 2014. And so for the next seven months, Denise and Aaron spent every day together. They were so drawn to each other. Mm. But, you know, he was also simultaneously mourning the loss of his other relationship. So it was a very complicated rebound, but also the right person. Right? It's yeah, tough. it was very complicated. So they ended up breaking up multiple times because of that. But then their breakups never lasted more than a couple of days and they miss each other and you can get back together. So it was just like a rocky and complicated way to start a relationship. Mm. During this time, Aaron noticed like a few odd things around his house. Like he kept having technical difficulties with like the door alarm inexplicably going off and he couldn't fix it. Um, he also kept getting these weird feelings of being watched but he lived on this place called Mare Island. It's a small island that's connected to the city of Vallejo, and you mm. access it by a small bridge. So during World War II, the military used Mare Island as a shipyard, but then after the war ended, they stopped using it. And then in the 1990s, it started getting developed as like a 
a neighborhood, whatever. And it was sort of revitalized. But my point is he lives on a very small island. His house backs up to this empty like marsh of just like water and stuff. And so he often would just keep his windows open. Okay. He didn't really have to like worry about people walking by and just seeing it. Yeah. So he started feeling a little bit paranoid about like kind of getting this feeling of being watched. And then he'd noticed that like some things get moved around or little weird things go missing Mm -hmm. and he lives alone now. So he notices if something is out of place. So, um, he also noticed this weird thing in his bedroom. There was suddenly like a reflective glare shining into his bedroom window that hadn't been there before. And he lived there for like two years. And so it hadn't been there, but he could never figure out the source of it. I keep getting like baby chills. Like, yeah. like down my legs yeah. as you've been saying this, because yeah. the body knows when something is just yes. not right. It's not like a gut instinct, yeah. but it's more like someone is in my bubble and I yeah. don't feel safe. Yeah, that is exactly it. And yeah. it was just, it literally it keeps happening. Yeah, All these little things that you, you just, you can write off logically and uh-huh. it doesn't make sense, but then, you know, you just so, know. yeah. So he would like go to the window look out across to try to see where what is this reflective thing and mm-hmm. he couldn't identify where it was coming from but then he stands in his room and he can look and see there's a glare on it so mm-hmm. it's strange but obviously your mind's not going to go to like anything crazy so anyways denise wanted everyone to know that they were together she wanted aaron to be proud to call her his girlfriend but he was very hesitant and didn't want anyone especially at work because of the connection the with his ex and all that he just didn't want people to know more about his love life than they already did. Then in February of 2015, Denise discovers that Aaron had been lying to her for months. <sighs> she had had this feeling and she looked at his phone. And even though they were completely over and he was now dating Denise, Aaron had been actively pursuing Jennifer for months and sending her texts about wanting to get back together and all that. Oh my God, Aaron. Yeah, so when Denise you know, finds these messages, they break up for good. Cause like, how could they not obviously? Cause in my head, I was thinking, do we, when I asked, do we trust him? I felt like there was like a blurred line of just like, they're probably fighting, but they it hadn't really broken up. It blurred. was, yeah. It was blurred and rocky and complicated. Like there's no doubt about that. Cause maybe I'm wrong, but when you break up, you get the heck out of there. Like you're not like sleeping in the spare bedroom for a very long time. I've had both breakups. I've had like the very messy, I guess if you have a lease drawn and stuff, out, yeah, and then I've had the, the clean cuts and they're, They're both hard. I would just want to bounce. Yeah. But anyways, losing Denise, hurting her like this by pursuing someone like Jennifer who had cheated on him, that just made him finally snap out of this trance he was in. And he realized he'd been in a very dark place trying to navigate such a harsh breakup. And then having to see his ex at work every day made it harder to just cut ties for good. Mm -hmm. So Aaron started going to therapy and told Denise he would win her back full disclosure like i was incredibly judgmental at first like dump his ass yeah. honey dump his ass i'm happy he pursued therapy though that's i respect the heck mm-hmm. out of that but then like reading because i'm I, all of this information comes from this book and so reading about the beginning of their relationship in their own words it just seems so like juvenile and toxic and yes. i just kept thinking like get out get out mm-hmm. don't want it you know and there's no excuse for lying to denise that's obviously totally on him but i I feel so bad for him because you just, when your life implodes like that, it's so devastating. You don't expect it to happen. And then you're even, he's not expecting to meet this fly ass honey at work who is so, so supportive and so sweet. 
obviously falling in love with a new person is so wonderful and it's its own special kind of magic, but that isn't enough to just erase the reality of the pain that someone else had just caused him. Mm -hmm. So he goes to therapy. He had Jennifer move out the last of her things. He set a boundary that going forward, they would only speak about work at work. You know, they were totally done. Obviously, Denise is very hesitant hesitant to believe him. Mm -hmm. She was so hurt by his lying, and she wasn't sure if she could even trust a word that she says. He says after all this, like obviously, fair, fair, fair. But deep down, she really wants to believe that Jennifer is finally out of their lives, and he chooses her. So she said that she remained open to the possibility of reconciling after he'd had some time to like sort himself out. Mm -hmm. So, but she also like warned him that winning her back would mean major consistency on his part. He'd have to earn her trust. And he was like, I know I'm a, I agree. I'm going to do it. And so he invites her over to his house to talk about it all. And he knew it was going to be like a long emotional talk. So he thought talking in private made sense, but she was like, there's no way I'm going to his house. He lived there with Jennifer. Uh, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to sleep with him. Like we need to go to a restaurant and do this in a public setting, like a real date. Like you got to wine yes, and dine me yes. kind of thing. But then as it got closer to evening time, she was like, well, actually I'm like already feeling kind of emotional. Yeah. And okay, maybe like, I think mm -hmm. in her mind she had already, she knew she was leaning towards giving yeah. him another shot. So she tells him at the last minute that she's going to come over and she'll bring up she'll bring a pizza and she like packed like an overnight bag it was like a sunday night so mm -hmm. she brought like an overnight bag and her work stuff for the next day so she kind of like already she knew. and they're like no judgment yeah, you you gotta not. do what you gotta do girl so she gets to aaron's at 5 30 p.m sunday march 22nd 2015 they sit on the couch they have some drinks and they talk and they cry they were both obviously falling in love with each other, but the entire start to their relationship was so painful and so tainted by his ex. So this evening, talking and knowing that they were on the same page now, it felt like a new beginning. It was more happy than anything else. Like they, they reconciled and yeah. it was very emotional for both of them. Like a clean start. Yeah. Like she finally truly believed he was out, that, that Jennifer was not in their lives anymore and mm -hmm. he was like officially ready to they commit could do it right and this that time. he was going to be proud to call her his girlfriend yeah. and that kind of thing. I mean, I think we've all been there. We've all reconciled with a partner after a tumultuous period. And that's, Oh, it's like, uh, what? <laughs> what? I haven't done that. Actually, <laughs> no, I haven't done stuff like that. It's not stupid. <laughs> <laughs> but the relief and like the joy of being together, it's so intoxicating. And you Ooh, know, yeah. you know, the makeup sex is like the best just sex. The whole oh my thing. gosh. Yeah. So obviously they just do the deed right there on the couch while they're reconciled. You no, know. They're weeping. Yeah. While they're crying, <laughs> they so just they bang it out on the couch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you can't be like wasting time getting up to the bedroom. Like, yeah. God forbid. I mean, no. So they spend the rest of the evening on the couch just talking drinking more you know just visiting mm -hmm. and then around midnight they go upstairs to go to bed and Aaron walked around shutting the doors and windows and he put his cat in the garage he'd recently adopted a stray cat that kept coming around his house he was a black and white little guy named Mr. Rogers okay so because he was an outdoor cat Aaron would put him in the garage at night to keep him safe like no exceptions Mr. Rogers always slept in the garage at night. He never slept in the house and he was never left outside. Like he would come and wait to be let into the garage. It was yeah. a routine. So they fall asleep right away because probably all that sick, you know? The, the fatigue. Mm -hmm. 
Aaron was on his back and Denise had her head on his chest. So as they're dozing off, Aaron's body like jerks because they hear a noise from downstairs. Mm -hmm. But it was like distant and they thought maybe it was like from the garage area. And because the cat was down in the garage and they were exhausted. Maybe he knocked something down. Yeah, they just didn't get up to look into it. And she said, I think on any other night, one of us would have gotten up, but it just... They didn't feel like it. Mm -hmm. Then at approximately 3 a.m., Denise hears a male voice say, wake up, this is a robbery. But she was in such a deep sleep that it didn't really jar her. She like did that thing where you like something kind of jars you and you try to keep yourself from waking up too much and just kind of go back to sleep. Yeah. And then she hears it again. A male voice says, wake up, this is a robbery. We are not going to hurt you. And he just repeats it over and over again until she finally like opens her eye and, and then she, boom, she's awake. Okay. Why don't you just rob them then? Let them sleep. Like oh, if you're not going to hurt them, it's oh, like, what the heck? It is so, so much more complicated than that. Did your brain go there too though? No. Oh. <laughs> oh yeah. yeah cool. Well, same though. Cool. 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 <laughs> so she's wide awake. She's paralyzed with fear. And all she can see is that there's a bright blinding white light flashing around the room really quickly and there are red like laser dots going back and forth on the ceilings and walls and along Aaron and Denise's bodies so they're both coming to and they realize there are multiple people standing in the room and they are all aiming what looks like guns with laser lasers at Aaron and Denise the man says we are not here to hurt you lie face down no they said it was <laughs> no. no i don't think i'm going to they said it was obvious that he was trying to speak in a way that distorted his voice he obviously sounded robotic it was like a period after every word mm-hmm. which only made the entire thing scarier so denise immediately turns over and lays on her stomach but aaron doesn't move and then the robotic voice says aaron you are facing up lie face down so he knows his name so he does it yeah and they're both thinking how the hell does he know his name my first thought would go aliens i'm in the middle of the night you've lights flashing on me and then you're speaking in a robot voice i'd be like well we're being taken over so (laughs) it's happening this is happening now so i go the robotic voice then explains to them that he is going to place multiple restraints on the bed and he wants denise to sit up and put them securely around aaron's wrists and ankles They can feel him walk up and put the restraints down by their feet and then quickly back away so that he can watch her do it without being close enough for either of them to touch him. She doesn't turn around to get the zip ties. She just sits up and reaches backwards. And Aaron puts his arms behind his back for her and she can hear him whisper, oh my God, like it's, this is really happening. Yeah, it's scary. So she's trying to zip tie him. But she's so nervous and disoriented that she starts to like fumble and she can't figure it out. Mm -hmm. And the robotic voice acknowledges that she's struggling. And he says, you are doing a good job. You are staying calm. You are doing a good job. And she said, oddly, that helped her get the hang of it. And she's she like, got, thank you. She's like, words of affirmation are actually my love yeah. language. <laughs> so she got it around his wrist. She tried to keep it a little bit loose, but like fumbled to make it, like try to hide it. Smart. And then the voice says, good job. Now his feet. 
And so she can feel that one of the intruders is standing like literally right next to her, but she doesn't turn around because she thinks if she sees them, then they will definitely kill her. That's good thinking. So after she zip ties Aaron's feet, the robotic voice tells her to go to the master bedroom closet and lie face down on the floor and that she can't look at them as she walks. So she stands up. She keeps her hair down, like hanging over her face to try to block her view so she doesn't see them by mistake. Mm -hmm. As she's doing this, she can see from the waist down there are two people standing by the bed. Okay. As she's walking, she trips over the cat, Mr. Rogers. And remember, he is never inside. So she's like, okay, so clearly they came in through the garage. Mm -hmm. The robotic voice ties, zip ties her wrists and ankles the same way that she did with Aaron. And then Aaron is told to hop to the closet to lay down next to to Denise. The intruders put swimming goggles over both of their eyes. And then the goggles had duct tape, like blacking them out. He put Denise's on very carefully, trying not to pull on her hair. And then he puts small headphones over both of their ears and leaves them in the closet. Oh, I was, I was thinking that was being considerate, but I'm assuming that's so they don't leave behind hair, like DNA evidence. When he said he was careful to put it on and not rip the hair. I wonder if that was for that consider it being considerate or if it was like an evidence type thing. It was, tra- he was trying to be considerate. Why would her hair and her home be evidence? Just combined with him. Okay. Anyways, just cut that out. <laughs> Sorry. It, he was trying to be careful because, you know, when you put swim goggles on, it pulls your hair. Girl, trust. I know what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I was just wondering if it was like. I a, just want to make sure you knew what you were saying. I just, I just wanted to know if he was being, it was like a selfish thing. I'm like, a. I just think it's bizarre for someone to be kidnapping you and then to be considerate about your hair being ripped out, if that makes sense. Then I'm going to go ahead and warn you. None of this is going to make sense. So you don't need to try to make sense of so it. So don't psychoanalyze every single no, thing. Okay. It's every sentence you're going to be like, wait, why? Wait, what? Wait, what? Because it is. So don't be myself that's, for this episode is <laughs> well, what you're saying. That's just how. Yeah. Okay. How Buckle insane up. it is. There's yeah, there's no making sense of it for sure. So the closet that they're in is above the kitchen in the living room. So while they're laying there, they can hear simultaneously one person using a drill in the living room while someone else rummages through the kitchen cabinets and a third who was the robotic voice stays in the master bedroom and makes a bunch of noise going through a big bag so it's very important that you understand they're hearing three different people in three different rooms moving simultaneously then all of a sudden gentle music starts to play in their headphones like yoga chimes A few seconds into the recording, Aaron hears someone whisper, Aaron, quick, to the window. But he can tell it came from the recording, and he thinks it's a test or something, so he doesn't budge because he can't see. His wrists and ankles are tied, so like he doesn't even know where the hell the window is. Then an altered voice starts speaking in the recording and says, Stay calm. We are not here to hurt you. This is not your fault. We are here for purely financial reasons. This will be over soon. That repeats over and over and over again. And then it switches to a new recording where a voice tells them that soon a quote medical professional will come in to ask some questions, take their vitals, and then give them a cocktail of NyQuil and diazepam, diazepam, something I don't know. Is is that a, um, I I don't know. I think it's a sedative. Yeah. If they don't take it orally, they will inject it. So some time goes by and this medical professional who is actually just the robotic voice guy 
he comes in and he asks all sorts of questions about their medical history to confirm that what he's going to give them won't cause a, a reaction or something like that. So they both drink it. And when Aaron lays back down, he tries to like discreetly drool a lot of it out. But he can't really. So he ingested most of it, unfortunately. Yeah. Then the recordings switch again. And they say soon they will be required to tell the intruders all of their bank account information and passwords to anything that requires a password. So obviously, this is not a simple home invasion. These guys are calculated and they've planned this. They know at least Aaron's name. They are going to wipe out their bank accounts. But at the same time, if they're also drugging them so that they just fall asleep while the intruders do their thing, that's a good sign because it means they want Aaron Denise to be incapacitated long enough to make a getaway. Yeah. So at least there's that. But then the robotic dude comes back and he says that they are going to move Denise into another room, which is alarming, but... No, you don't know what it's going to mean. So he helps guide her as she hops into a spare room. And as she's doing it, she can feel and sort of see the outline of another person standing nearby. And the person clicks on a taser and it makes that loud taser sound. I think as a warning because they may have realized that she had like sensed their presence. Mm -hmm. So she just put her head back down and kept hopping. And then as she's making her, you know, the robotic guy is guiding her because she can't see. She hears someone on like a staticky radio, a man bark out a military sounding command, but she couldn't make out what it was. So she lays down on the floor of the spare room and the voice puts on a new pair of headphones on her and she listens to a new recording play. It says that Denise and Aaron will be asked a series of questions. And if they answer honestly, then they will be rewarded by being able to stay in the same room together. But in her head, she's like, wait, what? You just separated us. So she doesn't know if that means the intruders messed up their own plan or if they just mean they'll come there. The reward will be putting be put back together. I don't know. Yeah, this feels like very. Have you seen Mr. Robot? No. Okay. (laughs) And then it says that if one of them answers dishonestly, the other one will be punished through electric shocks and cuts to the face. Oh, Aaron back in the master closet is also hearing the same recording. Then the robotic dude comes back and asks Denise for the passcode to her phone. She gives it to him and then he's walking out and he turns around and he asks if there's anything on her phone that she doesn't want Aaron to see. And she's like, weird. No. The room she's in shares a wall with the closet that Aaron is in and she can hear the robotic voice talking to him. And then Aaron recites like some numbers to him. So she's like, okay, good. He's cooperating. Mm -hmm. Then he returns to Denise and tells her, He's going to move her down to the living room couch. So he picks her up and carries her downstairs. As they're about to go down the steps, he stops quickly and steps aside for another person to walk by them. And the person brushes past them. And the robotic guy whispers to the person, no. And then goes downstairs and places her face down on the couch. It's, again, very important to understand that that man was holding her. Both his hands are on her and another body physically brushed against them as they walked by Mm -hmm. three people are in the house it seems like that that's what they've calculated yeah every time she's moved she's being moved further away from Aaron and of course she's wondering if it's because they're going to rape her and what's so scary is like how calm and calculated and like almost polite this all is there's Mm -hmm. nothing chaotic or violent it's just it's so gentle 
And he was physically very gentle with her, which was really unsettling. Before he leaves her in the living room, he asks her, are you comfortable? And she's like, actually, can I have a blanket? Because at this point, Aaron and Denise, they're in their underwear. They were taken out of bed at 3 a.m. And they've probably been laying on the floor for like an hour by now. So she's actually super cold. And the sedative is by the water too. The sedative is kicking in. And she's trying to fight it and stay alert and the nerves. So her body is like convulsing essentially. And she's really cold. The guy breaks his robotic voice and says, oh, sure, of course. And he puts the blanket on her and then says, there, are you comfortable? So that he goes out of the room and she can hear him from upstairs having a muffled exchange with Aaron. And Aaron like lets out like a, a, a very loud sigh or something. It was very, like, he let out a very weird noise. So up in the closet, Aaron has been able to hear a lot of movement around the house. He knows they moved Denise downstairs, and he knows his cat, Mr. Rogers, is inside because he heard the robotic guy whisper to someone, get the cat out of here. And then someone walked away, like, presumably with the cat, and the robotic guy continued talking to Aaron. So he could feel the vibration of someone walk away right after he heard get the cat out of here and then the robotic guy is talking to him at the same time so that's another sign that there physically someone else yeah. walked away he recites to aaron the home address that he grew up at the one that aaron's parents still live in to this day then he asks aaron what plans he has for the upcoming week and aaron considered lying but given how much information the intruders already proved that they knew he just figured he should just tell them the truth so he just said I just have work this week. The intruder leaves the room for a bit. Then he comes back in a little rushed and asks Aaron if there are any similarities between Denise and Jennifer Jones. And when he hears that, he lets out this like exasperated sigh. That's what Denise heard. He's like this again. (laughs) Okay. And he says, yes, they both have long blonde hair. I mean, so obviously Aaron and Denise, they were so bewildered this entire time. Like, what the hell is this all about? Why are they being targeted? They're physical therapists. Like, they're just, there's nothing, none of this makes any sense. But then especially now, like, what does it mean that his ex is involved in this? Aaron wondered if it had anything to do with the cop that Jennifer had cheated on Aaron with because when he found out about the affair, he also learned that Internal Affairs was investigating the cop for doing some shady shit. But even then, like, that still doesn't make any sense. So he's just... Why do you threaten him? Yeah, yeah. he's trying to piece together, like, anything that he can think of. So the voice goes and speaks to someone else in the room, in another room. He whispers to the other person, are we doing contingency one or contingency two? And then after a brief pause, the other person walks away and the robotic voice tells Aaron that they're going to take Denise for 48 hours and he will need to pay them $15,000 to get her back. He asked Aaron if that was an acceptable price. And Aaron's like, of course. Like, what is he supposed to say? Like, no, let's, and let me counter that. Let's say like 13 and a half, maybe something like that. Let's do a little (laughs) rebuttal. Yeah. So after this, the robotic voice goes back downstairs to Denise. Uh, She remembers that he seemed panicked and not as calm as before. And he's like, we have a problem. This was not meant for you. This was meant for Jennifer Jones. He says that to Denise. Yeah. (laughs) So you know that feeling when you're like, Nubu's ex just like won't go away. Yeah. Can you imagine 
she she literally was like are you serious like the this is happening and she, she is involved in this somehow. Like I can never get away from her kind of thing. So the robotic voice has another muffled exchange with someone in the other room. Then he comes back and he tells Denise she was not the intended target. They weren't given the right intel and they expected Jennifer to be here, which is very weird because Jennifer hadn't been to the house in like seven months, whereas Denise was there on a regular basis. And apart from having long blonde hair they didn't look anything alike the intruder tells her that they will take her with them for 48 hours Aaron will be left behind and will need to follow instructions in order to get her released and they will put Denise in the trunk of Aaron's car and drive to another location I would just in my head I'd be like who was he dating like the fact that his ex got them in this trouble somehow they don't know that she got them and they don't know anything I would just be like this chick she's toxic well yeah so she can hear them back her car out of the driveway and park it on the road then the voice tells her he collected her overnight bag and her purse and her glasses and he will bring it all with them and that part is really interesting because they're claiming to have mixed up Jennifer and Denise but the fact that they knew the glasses they found on the counter belonged to Denise and like not Aaron how could how could they know it meant they had seen Denise wearing them before and she didn't always wear them so there's that too that she had been watched the robotic voice lets Denise use the bathroom and he even like closed the door to give her privacy then he put Aaron's comforter in the trunk to make like a little cushion for her and lowered her in but they weren't ready to leave, so he told her he would leave her in the trunk with the door open and be back soon. But it's freezing, and she still doesn't really have a lot on, so she asks um, if she can have the blanket from the couch. And he breaks his robotic voice again and says, oh, yeah, of course. We're all wearing wetsuits, so I'm not sure how cold it is. So Denise is in the trunk, and Aaron is still up in the master closet, and he hears a new recording in his headphones. It says, quote, Aaron, we are going to take Jennifer for 48 hours. You will pay the amount provided by your contact to secure Jennifer's return. You may be wondering why this is happening to you. It may help to learn about our organization. We are a black market group hired to retrieve payments for personal and financial debts. Our group has secured payments across the country. This will be your burden to bear. Do not attempt to go to the police. We will always be watching you and your family. In one instance, a subject moved across the country in the belief that we would not find her. Years later, we put a pie on her doorstep, confirming to her that we knew her location. You will be moved to your downstairs living room. A camera has been installed to monitor your movements. The camera serial number has been filed off and authorities will not be able to trace it. Our cameras are highly sophisticated and work at high temperatures. Foolishly, one subject turned up the heat in his home in an attempt to short-circuit our cameras. He he. He was sadly mistaken. Any attempt to change the temperature will result in harm to Jennifer. The blinds will be shut and there will be markings that you must stay inside. If you do not follow our instructions, we will harm Jennifer. Hidden cameras have been installed throughout the house except for your downstairs bathroom. You are allowed to use the bathroom for short periods. If a neighbor or family member makes contact, you must make an excuse that does not raise suspicion. Any attempts to call authorities will result in harm to Jennifer. We will be watching you at the bank. If you attempt to alert the bank teller, we will kill Jennifer. Waiting will be the hardest part. 
you should entertain yourself by reading. <laughs> Stay strong for Jennifer and your family. So this is a pre-recorded thing for Jennifer. for Jennifer too. And it's not generic. It is very specific, obviously, because they use her name so many times times so Aaron gets moved to the couch and the robotic voice tells him that they left scissors on the counter he must lay on the couch until after sunrise then he's allowed to get up and cut himself free call in sick for work tech Denise text Denise's supervisor from her phone to inform them she's had a family emergency and will be out of work for the week there will be instructions to locate his car not not far from his home then he can go to the bank and withdraw two payments of $8,500 and wait for the kidnappers to make contact with him. And they stress to him he has to have his phone on him at all times and a dead cell phone battery is no excuse. So they even left a portable phone charger on the counter next to the scissors. Upon realizing that it was Denise and not Jennifer, I don't understand why they continued the plan. Cl clearly this is something that is very well thought out. They've done this before. If she is not the intended victim, I don't understand why they wouldn't go. I just this freaking. <laughs> before leaving, before leaving, the robotic voice asks if Aaron has any questions, and Aaron asks for a blanket because he's also been freezing. And the man says he breaks his robotic voice again, and he says, "Oh yes, I forgot how cold it is because we're wearing wetsuits." He put a blanket on Aaron, and then I guess left some books nearby for him to read because he told him to keep himself entertained that way. Mm -hmm. And then he's gone, taking Denise with him. As soon as Aaron hears them drive away, he moves around enough that he gets the goggles off of his face and he sees that it's 5 a.m. So between the warmth of the blanket, the sleep deprivation, and the sedative taking hold, he doesn't realize that he's fallen asleep until all of a sudden he jerks awake because his alarm is going off at 7 a.m. Mm -hmm. So he hops to the counter, he gets out of his zip tie restraints, and he sits down on the sofa with both of their cell phones, and he calls in sick to work. He texts her supervisor from her phone, and then he realizes again how cold he is, so he absentmindedly grabs his sweatshirt and throws it on. And then he's hit with the smell of Denise's perfume on his sweatshirt from the night before, and he's just like, what the hell should I do? They're going to kill her if I do anything, and I'll never live with myself if I do nothing. Mm -hmm. So he looks around the room at the camera that they installed. It's just like drilled into the wall, and then it's like the cord hangs down and is just plugged into the outlet. And he thinks about unplugging it, but then he remembers that they said that there were like hidden cameras. So they also have with like red tape, like red duct tape, mm -hmm. they have sectioned off all of these areas that are supposed to identify to him where he can't enter. Can't? Can't. So they're basically creating like a prison in his home. Do you kind of understand what I mean? And yeah. like all the blinds from the inside are taped shut. So you can't just like pull the string and open them. Mm -hmm. Mental torture. And then, you know, the sedative is so strong and he's fighting so hard to stay awake and think about the best course of action. And then suddenly it's 11 a.m. and he realizes that he had fallen asleep. So he calls his credit card company to see how much he qualifies to get as a cash advance and learns that it's nowhere near the amount that the kidnappers asked for. So now he knows that he needs to alert the authorities, but the intruders led him to believe that they were monitoring his cell phone activity. So instead of calling 911, he decides he should call his brother, Ethan, who happens to be an FBI agent. Okay. So Ethan listens and he's like, 
okay, the best thing you can do right now is call 911. And Aaron is like whispering. He's like, no, I can't. They said they would kill her. And Ethan's just like, yeah, they all say that. You need to call 911 right now. That's good to know. So he hangs up and he calls 911. He makes the call before he can change his mind again. And he's he doesn't even have time to comprehend the potential magnitude of what he's done. And there's already a cop at the door. Wow. Okay. They come inside with no sense of urgency. They ask him some questions. They walk around looking at the house. They verify that no one else is there. And something had been wrong with that camera. And before the kidnappers left and he had asked Aaron, do you have any questions? Aaron asked, is the camera going to keep making that sound? Because it was like, dung, dung, dung. Like it was like making a weird dinging sound. Mm. And the guys, the kidnapper told him like, yeah, we had an issue connecting to the Wi-Fi. So it's, it's just like setting up and it should stop soon. Mm-hmm. But he said it, it hadn't stopped that entire time. So from 5 a.m. to 11, when the, the cops arrived, it was just like, dong, 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 like that. Bloody. He said it haunts him to this day. So while the cops are there, it's still going off. And the cop, one of the cops turns and he's like, oh. And he walks over to it, reaches down, and unplugs it with his bare hands. And Aaron's like, oh, my God. (laughs) What are you doing? Mm -hmm. And the guy is just, like, dismissive. He doesn't think it's a big deal. So they take Aaron outside to ask more questions. And they just, they don't really seem all that convinced. So they say they need to take Aaron to the station for more questioning. A detective named Matt Mustard enters the interrogation room at the Vallejo Police Department and he says, hi, how you doing? Like right off the bat, he's one of those dudes who thinks he knows everything and he's not going to play games. And he's just, he like has this like annoying, like Matt Mustard thing <laughs> about Reporting him. for duty. Yeah. He doesn't seem to do, he doesn't seem quick to do anything about Denise. And all the while Aaron is like trying so hard to stress to everyone the urgency of the situation and everyone responds with a sort of like yeah uh uh-huh so anyways let's go through this one more time kind of thing like they're being very dismissive so he tells the detectives everything and they ask him if he's willing to hand over the clothes that he's wearing as evidence and even though he already told them that he had been in his underwear during the whole ordeal and only put those clothes on when he woke up long after the kidnappers had left he agrees because he doesn't have anything to hide obviously all he wants to do is help him be cooperative and speed this along so they have him remove one article of clothing at a time taking a photograph of him each time until he is fully nude and then one of the detectives hands him some clothes and says sorry this is all we have he smelled them and they seemed clean but they were stained with like like sweat stains and marks and they were clearly used clothes um and he looks closely and they are Solano County inmate clothes. Oh. So now he's wearing like literal like prison chic and the yeah. cops have him go through the whole story again. And he's just like, really? They could be killing her right now. They could be raping her. Anything could be happening. And you're just sitting here asking me to repeat the story. Treating me like a again bad guy. And again and again. Yeah. So they go through his story more than more times than I even bothered to keep track of. Aaron is telling not only everything that happened in the house, but the whole relationship drama between he and Denise and his ex, Jennifer. So after about 40 minutes, Mustard sighs and says, your story is very elaborate and in some ways far-fetched. And Aaron's like, oh my God, I know. Trust me. I know it sounds so crazy. 
And Mustard cuts him off and he says, listen to me for a second. The part of the story you're telling me here, I ain't buying it at all. Listen to me. There ain't no frogmen came into your house. Nobody dressed in wetsuits. It didn't happen. That didn't there happen. There ain't no frogmen. He goes on to warn Aaron. <sighs> he goes on to warn Aaron that Mare Island is very small with very limited access points. So the cops will soon be able to get enough security footage to track Aaron's movements in the last few days and confirm that he's lying. Mustard says, I don't think she was kidnapped from your home. I think something bad happened in your house, and I think something bad happened between you and her. Aaron said in this moment, realizing that he had gambled Denise's life big time by going to the police, he doesn't have his phone, which means he can't, he hasn't responded to the kidnappers who have most likely already tried to reach out after, you know, explicit instructions to keep mm -hmm. his phone with him at all times. He said, in this moment in time, it made him feel like his organs were twisting in opposite directions and his bones wanted to rip through his skin. He just yeah. felt like I'm dying I'm right dying now. I'm combust. Mustard tells him that part of the reason they don't believe him is that the police have Aaron's phone and no one has attempted to contact him. No emails, no calls, no texts, nothing. So his story isn't checking out. And Aaron's heart is about to like drop out of his butt hearing this because he realizes this means the kidnappers know he went to the authorities exactly. and Denise might already be dead. Yeah. So meanwhile, as he's you know piecing this together and he's just like, oh my God, what have I done? Mustard is just rambling on about how Aaron is faced with a decision. He can make a good decision and tell the truth or he can make a bad decision and he can lie. And Aaron's like, I'm not lying. And Mustard says... So you want me to believe that unknown people broke into your home by unknown means come with pre-recorded statements and they're wearing, what did they, like swim in in their wetsuits? Mm -hmm. It doesn't make any freaking sense. And Aaron tries to say how he knows it sounds crazy, but it happened. He has no criminal record. And Mustard interrupts and says, I agree with you. You don't have a record, which makes me think you reacted to a situation that you didn't plan this. Something happened and you were trying to figure out what to do. And then he says, there's blood in the house. And he just lets it hang in the air to see like what Aaron He'll says. claim and who it belongs to. As if he's going to be like, oh, okay, you caught me. <laughs> yeah, shoot. And Aaron has like no idea what that means because he wasn't hurt. He didn't have any reason to believe that Den Denise had been hurt. Mm -hmm. And then Mustard says, I don't know if it's hers or not yet, but I'm going to presume it's hers. I'm going to presume she wasn't alive and kicking when she left the house. But let's play this through for a minute. Intruders come in, right? Intruders hurt, kill, defame, whatever, Denise. Do you think that they take her? No, they leave. And they probably kill you too, right? So why then do I not find Denise in the home? It makes me think I don't find Denise in the home because the story doesn't fit. And Aaron has like just stopped engaging <laughs> oh altogether because he knows that everything he's saying is getting twisted. It's going to be used against him. And he isn't going to change Mustard's mind because he, he is so aggressive and clearly made up his mind that he has this story in his head. But in his mind, he's like, Aaron's like, this isn't a murder. I told you it was a kidnap. So, yeah. of course, you're not going to find her body. And, of course, they're not going to kill me because they want the ransom from me. So Also, no two crimes are the same. Like, just because you have that thing in your head of the husband or the boyfriend always does it, it doesn't mean that there's a formula no matter what that they have to follow. I just I don't, I don't get him. Mustard then says, beating his fist like into his other hand for emphasis with each word, think about it. 
you sat there for hours and hours and hours trying to figure out, oh my God, what am I going to do? Think about it. Find 12 of your friends and tell them the story. How many of them are going to believe you? And like Mustard is breaking him down because at this point it's been hours and Aaron is so messed up from the trauma, the lack of sleep mixed with the sedative and now the stress of the people he went to for help not believing him. So then he starts to wonder like, where is his family? Like Ethan knows what happened. Why isn't Ethan here? Like why? Like I don't understand what's happening. Like like you're losing your mind. Yeah, he started to feel that way, but he doesn't want to say that out loud. So then he starts asking, is my brother Ethan here? Are my parents here? Can I call them? Can I see them? Are they here? Every time he asks, one of the cops would be like, oh, I'm not sure. Like, let me go check and then just never come back. So Mustard goes on and on spewing some more bullshit, trying to rope Aaron into confessing into killing Denise and making up this kidnapping story. And then he goes, did you watch that Lacey Peterson or Scott Anderson or whatever the hell his name was? Did you watch that story coming out of Modesto? You're old enough to have watched that. You look at that and you go, that dude is a lying son of a bitch. I don't even know the guy. I don't even know half the story, but there is no way that that happened. That's the way people are going to look at you. And I'm like, okay, you just admitted that you don't even know the whole story and you're making a snap judgment about Scott Anderson. Scott Anderson, yeah. <laughs> um, anyways, so he tells Aaron, here's what's going to happen. Denise is going to be found. And when I say she's found, I mean she's dead. Understand that. Understand that I've accepted that. She's dead. You want me to go tell her family that she's dead? Because that's what I'm prepared to do. I'm going to go tell them that I'm not looking for a live Denise. I'm looking for a dead Denise. And it's just a matter now when her body is going to come. She's dead. This This guy is is insane. This dude is like firing off question after question, trying to trip Aaron up. And Aaron's just like not engaging with him. And then finally Mustard is like yelling his questions. Unraveling. And he goes, hey, maybe she overdosed. Were you playing with prescription drugs from work? Are you guys experimenting, having fun with prescription drugs? It's okay if you are. She takes too much and she overdoses. And now you're like, oh shit, what am I going to do? I can see that happening too. So do you remember? (laughs) Can you believe what I just heard? Do you remember in my Chris Coleman story when I was like, always ask for an attorney, no matter what. This story is a prime example of that. He was victimized, but you can't assume that the cops who weren't present for this whole crime are just going to automatically believe that you are a victim. And in total, Aaron was in this interrogation room for 18 hours before he thought to ask for an attorney because the entire time he was naively thinking I'm victimized I'm trying to tell you what you need yeah Yeah. and before he finally asked for an attorney an FBI agent named Peter French even convinced him that he should take a lie detector test so he complies because he has nothing to hide even though in his mind he's like those aren't even like, like, I didn't even know the police can use those anymore. You can't use it in court. Like, it's so weird, but I don't, I'm not lying. So I'll do it. And there's nobody else. He has no contact with any of his family or anything to support him and make him like question if he should do that. So he just wants to speed it all along and he does it. Um, he, during it, he was not allowed to breathe too deeply. Uh, he couldn't move a muscle. And then when it was all over, they wouldn't show him the results. So, they just told him you failed miserably. This is like mental torture. And Aaron is thinking, oh my God, this was such a bad idea. 
He went into that polygraph traumatized. He's cold and hungry. He's shaken and exhausted from a lack of sleep and obviously very emotional after having sat in this room for like an entire day. So he's like, of course, my body's betraying me right now. It's Mm -hmm. not even operating like normal. So that's when he finally asks for an attorney. And remember, he continually asked if his family was there. And every time that happened, the cops avoided answering. But it turns out that Ethan and Aaron's parents had been sitting on the other side of the wall the entire time. And they spent their entire time there asking, can we see Aaron? Does he know we're here? Can you please tell him we're here? Like they were trying to get to him also. In addition to being in the FBI, Ethan also has a law degree. And he explained to his parents that he messed up big time by not telling Aaron to get an attorney. And that's something that he's going to regret for the rest of his life. But that legally Aaron needs to be the person to ask for an attorney. They can't ask for one for him. And Aaron's mom said that, I mean, after like 18 hours, she just, she wanted to stand up and start screaming. Like where she didn't know where he was and she just wanted to scream, Aaron, ask for an attorney and like hope that he heard. Mm -hmm. So the detectives come out and inform Ethan that Aaron failed a lie detector test. He's asking for a lawyer and they believe he is exhibiting signs of schizophrenia and that perhaps Ethan could speak with him and get more from him than they can. So before Ethan then walks into the room, because he's trusting these professionals, he hasn't been present for any of this. He's like, what the hell? Like, what is, like, did he have like a mental break? Like, Mm -hmm. what is this? And then just before he walks in, Mustard tells him that Aaron keeps saying things like crazy things about the intruders putting cameras inside the walls. So then they're thinking that's paranoid. But as soon as he sees Aaron, he knows the police are full of BS and Aaron is telling the truth. And he asked him, did you tell the police that the kidnappers have cameras in your walls? And Aaron was like, no. But the reason that Mustard said he was showing signs of schizophrenia is because Aaron's eyes were dilated. Oh, my God. I know. Aaron was like sobbing and hugging Ethan. And he kept saying like, this is so stupid. If I were going to lie, I would come up with a way better story. Like this, this is the truth. So Ethan leaves the room and he tells Mustard that even though it is his brother, he believes Aaron and that he is now requesting an attorney. And Mustard shakes his head and says, well, in my experience, that never helps anything. And Ethan is like, <laughs> You don't well, know much about much. <laughs> and Ethan is like, well, in my experience, it does. So Aaron finally leaves the police station after being in there for 18 hours. And his family hires an awesome defense attorney named Dan Russo. Who like also represents E40. Which I was going to say, that sounded really familiar, but I don't think I would have ever known that. Anyways. That's totally unrelated to the story, but yeah. it's just like a Bay Area fun fact. <laughs> <laughs> so Dan tells Aaron that Vallejo PD are notoriously the most incompetent, corrupt police force around that area. Wow. And that they'll do everything they can to railroad Aaron. And that under no circumstances is he allowed to speak to them again without his attorney present. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Denise's experience went like this. The intruder closed her in the trunk of Aaron's car and they started driving and she could hear he had the radio playing and she was struggling to breathe like there was no air in the trunk at all. So she's like, oh my God, oh my, like she's trying not to panic because she feels like she's going to suffocate. And then suddenly the car stops. The intruder yanks the trunk open and violently grabs Denise and warns her not to make another sound. 
And she's so confused because she hadn't made a peep. So she's like, did he hear a woman on the radio and think it was me? And then he closes the trunk and he continues driving. And after about 30 minutes, he stops again. And this time he transfers her to a different truck trunk. They started driving again. And she said she just laid there in the dark, listening to commuter traffic zoom by her, just picturing these people on their way to work with zero clue that they had just passed a vehicle with a woman in the trunk. And I was like, oh my God, that's such a horrifying thought. How many cars have we passed that had somebody in the trunk and we were just like none the wiser? I have thought about that multiple times. Oh, okay. (laughs) I haven't. Not (laughs) weekly, but often. So similar to Aaron's niece finally can't fight off the sedative any longer and she ends up falling asleep in the trunk for how long she has no idea but she wakes up when she feels the car slowing down and then she can feel that he's like slowly driving along like a gravel dirt road Mm -hmm. she assumes that they are in a secluded area because when he opens the trunk again she knows it's daylight and he's making no effort to hide the fact that he's lifting a woman out of his trunk so Mm -hmm. clearly there's nobody around He gets her out and he tries to carry her, but he loses his grip and he fucking drops her Yeah, like on the ground and then he falls on top of her. So like imagine you, an adult woman being cared like an infant and someone just like, let's go. And then then a grown man crushes you. Mm -hmm. He's totally lost his calm and calculated composure from earlier. So he's like super flustered and frustrated. And instead of trying again or like asking her to hop instead, He grabs her zip-tied ankles and drags her into what feels like a garage. Oh. And he leaves her there and tells her not to move and he'll be back soon. So she lays there forever, listening to him on the other side of the wall, scrubbing. She just hears scrubbing, 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 scrubbing. And she's just picturing him cleaning up blood and body parts from previous victims in preparation for her to be next. Like, Mm -hmm. it's like so loud, whatever he's scrubbing. He comes back and he announces that the bathroom is finally ready for her. He tells her that he needed to clean it to prevent any evidence from the room being transferred onto her. And he needs her to shower to remove any evidence of her being there so that the police can't trace her back to that location after she's released. And he isn't speaking in the robotic voice anymore. He's just talking normally, which actually really scared her because Mm -hmm. she's like, okay, the more you identify, the more likely you are to kill me. So... Remember, she is still wearing the blacked out goggles and he tells her that she is not allowed to take them off in the bathroom and not allowed to touch the small window in the shower. He guides her around the bathroom, showing her where the sink is, where the toilet is and where the shower is. He tells her she will be watched the entire time so he will know if she disobeys. But then he says that he will leave the room to give her privacy so as to not dehumanize her any more than he already has. He says that while she showers, he will prepare a room for her as if this is like a bed and breakfast Mm -hmm. that she unexpectedly checked into or something. Oh my gosh, a shocking vacation. And he tells her to knock on the wall three times when she's done. So she blindly showers as quickly as she can, all the while wondering if she really is being watched. Then she knocks on the wall three times and nothing happens. So she waits a second and then she does it again. And then he like bursts through the door all out of breath. And he's like, wow, that was fast. The room isn't ready for you yet. Hold on. And he has they like did early check in. And he has her wait on the couch in the other room. She can hear him in a nearby room, like moving things around and like duct taping stuff. So he moves her into a bedroom and he sits her on a bed. 
He describes the room to her, where the dresser is, where the closet is. He tells her there's food and water on the dresser, and her glasses are on top if she needs them, which is weird because she's still wearing the goggles, and he told her not to take them off, Mm -hmm. so I don't know what that was about. He tells her, I'm going to be leaving for a little bit, and while I'm gone, a man named Jay is going to be watching over you. If he speaks, don't be alarmed. He sounds like a typical black guy. More than likely, he won't need to talk to you. He'll just check on you occasionally. It is in your best interest to not give him a reason to talk to you. So she hears him drive away, and she passes out again because of the sedative. She doesn't know how much time went by. She slept the whole time and never spoke to or sensed the presence of this other guy, Jay. The robotic voice kidnapper comes back sometime later and wakes her up. He apologizes to her for being rough with her earlier when she was in the trunk and accusing her of screaming. He said it was his mistake. He realized after the fact that Aaron's steering wheel squeaks as it turns and he had mistakenly thought she was screaming in the trunk. Oh. Then he sits her down and he starts to explain what this is, what this organization he's a part of is all about and how it was started. He apologizes for roping her into this and reminds her that it wasn't intended for her, but for Jennifer. He says it was his fault. His job in the organization is to gather intel on the targets and choose when to make the hit. And he must have missed the signs that Jennifer no longer lived or visited at the home. He's like the most kind, considerate asshole (laughs) ever. The more he tells her stuff, the more she's just like, please stop. I don't want you to give. I don't want you to have any more reason to kill me. And he's like, oh, the plan is not to kill you. The plan is to release you. And then he just keeps talking. He says about these gentlemen criminals in this organization, we are all highly trained. Some of us have a military and technological backgrounds. We have intensely studied the psychological effects of victims in situations like this, so we know what to expect. We've even practiced on each other. We have all unexpectedly attacked one another in the middle of the night. It's terrifying, I know. As if that's even like remotely similar to what she and Aaron just went through. Then he's bragging about how many missions they've successfully completed in the past and that targets have never been harmed. He says they meticulously monitor targets before and then for years afterwards. He claims the victims have never gone to the police before. The organization taps the victims' phones and tracks not only the victims' movements, but the victims' loved ones as well. He says they prepare themselves completely to anticipate all risks, all possibilities that things could go awry, and they plan accordingly. Except for Denise, they messed up for the very first time. He claims this is the first mission he was on the lead, and he says that he had spent the last six months entering Aaron's home, rummaging through his things and getting intel, and he mistakenly believed Denise was Jennifer all that time. Denise hears this and starts thinking back on how often she got the feeling of being like watched Mm -hmm. when she was at Aaron's and then like the weird things that he had noticed that made him wonder if someone had been in the house. And then he says, last week when you stayed over at Aaron's, we were outside his bedroom door ready to proceed. But then we were called off because there were too many police units on the island. If only I had looked inside your purse last night and saw your ID, we would have left and none of this would have happened to you. This feels very extensive for 15 grand. Yeah. Like the fact that they're being watched for years after. I understand if this was like a a very large thing of millions, but not 15. Like that's, yeah, I don't buy it. So throughout the rest of the day, 
He gives her multiple bathroom breaks and he doesn't hurt her. He feeds her and she sleeps on and off. But then that evening, he comes back into the room and she can tell even before he says anything, something is wrong. And he says, we have a problem. One of us is going to have to have sex with you. We have a problem? Obviously, this whole time, both Aaron and Denise have wondered repeatedly if she might be raped. That's a thought that goes through anyone's head when a crime is being committed against totally. a woman. And men as well. I don't mean no, I, I don't mean saying. to not be inclusive because men are sexually assaulted too. But I can only speak from the perspective as a woman that is just so normal to wonder anytime a woman is put in a situation where they're going to be cornered or attacked or kidnapped or even just like riding in an elevator with someone that makes you uncomfortable. You yeah, just think about just it. Leaving your it house. Just, <laughs> yeah, it just, the thought will cross your mind always. So on some level, she knew this was coming and she wasn't surprised. And she starts to try to just, you know, detach from her mind and body. She's going to go into survival mode and it's just like, I have to do what I have to do to get through this. But the cherry on top... This fucking guy starts acting like this is going to happen against his will, too. Like he's also being victimized. Something's happened. We have to do this. He says that because this mission wasn't intended for her, the organization has no dirt on Denise. Therefore, someone has to, quote, have sex with her. They'll record it on camera. And if she ever speaks of this whole ordeal, they'll release it on the Internet. Footage of her being raped. No. He says he isn't in charge and he isn't sure how many of them will need to have sex with her. So he will go speak to the others and then come back and let her know the plan. So he's gone for a bit and then he comes back and he says, it has been decided that I will have sex with you. It was my fault for not getting the correct intel. This is more of a punishment for me. You did nothing wrong. I just proposed to my fiance two weeks ago and this recording will be used to ensure that I stay on track with the mission. So it has to look consensual like we are a couple. I need time to prepare myself. This is going to be hard for me. He says that the video will be reviewed by his supervisors to determine if it looks like they are, in fact, a real couple. And then he leaves the room. And she lays there waiting for this impending rape for what feels like hours. She really has like no idea. She was like 30 minutes could have passed. I don't know. And then he comes back into the room and he tells her he wants to talk a bit. He thinks he will feel better if they can get to know each other a little bit before he, quote, has to go through with it. Whatever helps you, honey. He asks if he can lay on the bed next to her while they talk. And she's just like, okay, because like. What are you supposed to do? She doesn't have a say in anything, you know, so it's all like this this weird fake. People are normal, whatever. So she tells him about her job as a physical therapist, about her residency at the hospital And that she has only two weeks left before she starts her dream job. And that she has a written exam scheduled for the following day to graduate the program. And he goes, oh, really? I wouldn't worry about that. I'm sure they'll let you retake it. She tells him about Aaron being a physical therapist too. That they both just love to help people recovering from terrible injuries. They're both very passionate about their work. And he says to her, when I spoke to Aaron upstairs, I could tell he's a good guy. None of this should be happening to people like you. He tells her that he served in the military. He had been stationed in the Middle East and that he has PTSD and insomnia. He's tried to live a normal life, making a normal living, but his psychological problems make it difficult. So he finds that this type of work is better suited to him. He 
He says he wouldn't even be doing this mission if it wasn't for the fact that his brother recently had surgery that cost a few hundred thousand dollars and that he needed to help his brother with his finances. So she tries to be compassionate and empathetic, hoping that that sways him to show her mercy. So she tells him that she had been molested as a child and that going to therapy as an adult helped her immensely and changed her life for the better. So she asks if he has ever considered therapy and he just waves it off and says therapy wouldn't work for someone like him. So he tells her, I can see you're a strong person. It's admirable how you're handling all of this. And then he laughs and he says that he needs to calm his nerves so he's going to have some wine and he leaves the room again. So in the book, she was saying, like, it's one thing to be violated unexpectedly. I know what it feels like, but to make me sit here and wait for it to happen, imagining how it will play out is psychological torture, and he knows it. He comes back and says, it's time. I have to go through with it, but I promise I will be gentle. I don't want to make this worse for you. Denise said she just went completely numb and frozen. She left her body during it all, and she felt like she was floating above, looking down as if this wasn't happening to her and thinking, that poor woman. Surprise, surprise. No part of him acted as if this was difficult for him, like he claimed. He was very much enjoying it. And she just stayed limp and detached while he threw her around the bed into different positions like a rag doll. And then as he climaxes... He whispers in her ear, this is bullshit. Like as if he hated this as much as she did. And then in that moment, it hits her. There is no way this looks consensual on camera. She has blacked out swim goggles on, all tangled in her hair, and she is completely unresponsive to the entire thing. So she knows in that moment with absolute certainty, he's going to rape her again. And, um, so that's where we leave off. <laughs> so, that, so that's where we're going to leave off because this is literally halfway through the story and it only gets crazier and crazier and crazier. I have never in my 29 years on this planet heard anything more insane than this. Yeah. This is unlike anything I've ever heard. It really is. It's like a little bit scarring almost. <laughs> yeah. Well, great. Come back for more. <laughs> yeah. So soon. <laughs> So the second part, it's just, it's such a long recording that I think we mm-hmm. need to split it into two, but yeah. I think we can release it earlier than next week. They don't have to yeah. be a week apart. So no, we'll just do like a bonus episode, I think. Yeah, that sounds perfect. Okay. Well, all right. Uh, <laughs> Yay. Can't wait Yay. to not know what happens for a few more days. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> okay. All right. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you enjoy listening. We owe everything to the many journalists, authors, filmmakers, psychiatrists, and psychologists whose extensive work and expertise we pulled from to share this episode with you. For all of our detailed source material, please visit our website, thecrimebarpodcast.com. If you'd like to see content from today, you can find us on Instagram at crimebarpodcast. We really love doing this show, and if you'd like to help with the continued creation of it, you can support by donating to our Patreon, which we have linked on our website as well as our Instagram, patreon.com slash crimebarpodcast. This episode was hosted by Ashley Brumley-Johnson and Anna Katharina. We'll see you next week.